let's read the passage now that I asked you to find, Acts 9, 36 to 43. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. <clears throat> in those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside him, all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> so this is a beautiful story, and on the surface, it looks just pretty straightforward, you know? Peter was hanging around in a town not far away. Peter was the most famous of the apostles, and uh, they expected great things to come out of his mouth, and they even believed he could work miracles, and I guess they were justified in that. So they called him to Tabitha and they asked him to help and he did and great story. So where do you go from there? Well, this is a beautiful story, especially when you dig deeper. And we've had a lot of conversation lately about the Bible. Well, that's a silly thing for me to say because we always talk about the Bible around here. It's kind of my preferred topic at church and it's funny how that works. Uh, and when we talk about scripture, one thing I always wish people to understand is that the, the amazing thing about God's word with a capital W, you know, the heart and mind of God, that's what that really means. Word with a capital W translates to logos and the word logos means kind of God's heart and mind. And so it's more than just printed pages. It's an expression of God's deepest inner being and the beautiful thing about it is, is that even people who have no formal education in scripture reading receive blessing from it. You can read it and hear God's voice. It just works. There's countless millions of examples of how that has happened in people's lives. Reading the Bible will change your life, I promise you. And it doesn't matter whether you're well-schooled in scripture and theology and doctrine and all of that, but it helps to have people like that around. It helps to have people in your life who can help you dig deeper so that you can get even more enrichment from your reading of scripture. And it's part of being a community of Christian believers is the study of God's word or seeking God's heart and mind together. So here's a great example. We're having somebody around who who you know, has some extra education or experience with the word could be useful to you. 
I want you to think about the last line of the passage we just read. Verse 43 says, and Peter stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now, I don't know how much you know about tanning skins and leather. Um, To this day, it's still done in a very ancient way. And even if it's done mechanically, it's still done the same way. In Jesus's day, and in the time of this story, um, Simon the Tanner was a guy who probably smelled terrible almost all the time. Because tanning involves a process of removing the hair and the inner uh, components of, of flesh and fat and tissue from the skin so that you can pull the leather away and shape it and cut it into the things that you use. And leather craft is such a big part. If there's any man wearing a belt today, then you know what the tanner does. A tanner is the person who makes those leather belts you wear or the sandals people wore in Peter's day or a thousand other implements that were part of life. But the tanning process involved using combinations of animal urine and other kinds of acids and combinations of of putrefaction. You know, this is after all the flesh of an animal being separated from its skin and then the skin being treated so that it can serve for a long time. And, And so there's a process of putrefaction. So there's the smells of rotting flesh. There's the smells of the acidic, so you can imagine that pneumonia, pneumonia, wrong word, ammonia smell, right? You can imagine that sort of ammonia smell. Anybody ever open a diaper pail lately? That'll open your sinuses. I could smell a diaper pail today, despite my condition. Well, imagine a soup of diaper pail aromatic juices. And this is what tanners dealt with every day. Now, Simon was a Jew. You can tell because of his name. Um, After all, Peter was Simon Peter, and it's a Jewish name. He was a Jew, and while this, this profession left him ceremonially unclean most of the time, and frankly, just stinky and stained all the time, because some professions that we all depend on, leave the people who practice those things with conditions that make the rest of us feel a little put off. I I remember when I was a teenager working in a pizza parlor and after a full shift of cutting onions and spreading them with my hand on people's pizzas, I couldn't stand my own hands for three or four days after that. Nobody thought about wearing gloves in those days. I am old after all, but you know, it does have a way of getting into your skin and staying for a long time. And so I want you to just get this idea in your head. So, so Peter is the most renowned of the apostles, the most sought after Christian celebrity of his day. And while there's a lot of pushback against Christianity, there's a huge movement for Christianity. And so many people would treat him as a celebrity and give him a lot of deference. 
But look what he chose. Look what he chose. He chose to live with the tanner. So that's the first thing I want you to see about Peter. That guy really got his act together. He was really devoted to Jesus. And he was committed just as he promised when he said, I love you, Lord, three times. I'll go wherever you send me. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. And this whole series of stories in this chapter of Acts presents Peter going places that were unthinkable. He will eventually go to a Roman leader's home. You know, the Romans were the oppressing foreigners who had you know, done something like what Russia is doing to Ukraine and then occupying the land. And, and this, is, this is so against his Jewishness. It's so against his civil sense of righteousness. You know, his, there's no reason in the world that Peter should want to have company with the Roman leader, but he went because he felt obliged to. And so the first part of the message today is just to recognize that faithfulness, it's sort of a part two from last week's message. Faithfulness to Christ requires love that is unconditional. It requires you to do what he asks you to do, go where he asks you to go, regardless of how you feel about it. It's not up to you. And I don't think Peter even gave it a great deal of thought. I'm sure every time that he found himself in a situation that he thought was inconceivable, he wasn't like struggling so much as he was saying, imagine this, never thought I'd see myself here. I don't know about the rest of you guys that, you know, maybe around my age, you ladies and gentlemen, but you probably have felt that way too, right? You you get to a certain point in your life where you just go, man, If you'd have told me three years ago I'd be standing here doing this, I would have said, nah, not gonna happen, right? I just think that's how Peter probably really experienced it. It's like, God is good. Wow, can you imagine that? Look at me. I'm I'm staying at a tanner's house and liking it, you know? And that's what happens when we throw off all the pretense. It's what happens when we throw off all of our our self-importance, you know? I, I wish that there was a simple way that I could say it and we'd just all go home and be Christians for the rest of our lives. But the struggle that we all have throughout our Christian living is that we find this constant tension between our need to feel certain things about ourselves and to believe certain things about ourselves and the need that we have as Christian believers to just forget about all of that. I mean, I, I don't know how else to say it, but if you, if you think about some of the most challenging relationships you have, they're almost always with people who take themselves too seriously. <laughs> and and they're, just, they're just unaware of how the demand to be taken seriously, it, it pervades their relationships with others to the extent that it's exhausting, you know? And so it's like, if you can figure out the most important thing about being a good Christian, just look at Peter. He just stopped taking himself too seriously and went where God sent him and did what God told him to do. And then just said, imagine that. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of a laid back, relaxed way to live, isn't it? And it's a much more joy-filled way to live. 
Don't worry about what anybody else thinks of you. Just think about what you're doing in the moment and how it serves the Lord. And sure, there will be things you'll do that you'd rather not do, things you would say and, and things that you would, would have to, to uh, be responsible for that you'd rather not. But at the end of the day, you don't think of it in terms of being about you as much as you think of it as about the Lord's will for your life and the purpose that you are fulfilling by just doing what he wants you to do and being where he wants you to be. And like Peter, you can say maybe privately in your quiet, most uh, private times with the Lord, you know, I really wish you would keep asking, would quit asking me to do these things because it's not getting any easier. And the Lord might smile politely at you and say, well, we'll see about that. I'll take that into consideration. (laughs) And you probably end up going where you don't want to go tomorrow too. But in a way, it's not the worst thing in the world that could happen to you. The worst thing would be to be entirely and completely separated and cut off from God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The worst thing would be to live your life entirely dependent upon your wit and wisdom and the cooperation of other people who don't serve the living God. Now there's another thing I wanna say about today's reading and it isn't as elaborate, but it is complicated. As you probably noticed, I'm trying to share with you lately additional things about our Wesleyan heritage. And this is purposeful in that I'm just trying to let you know that whatever we do going forward with our relationship with the United Methodist Church, however that turns out, we are at our best as people who, whether we're aware of it or not, are worshiping and serving in a Wesleyan tradition. In other words, we, we, we may not know it or verbalize it in certain ways, but, but the way we do church every week and the way that we are the church throughout the days between the Sundays is a Wesleyan Methodist way. It's not overt and it isn't more important than being a Christian. Please hear that. But it is a sort of mindset and interpretation of things that we have here. And you keep coming back because it's acceptable to you. And if you go across town to the Lutheran church or the Presbyterian church, you will find that Luther is at the heart of what they do in the Lutheran church. And in the Presbyterian church, it would be uh, John Calvin, you know, so they all have sort of a, a person who established a certain set of of practices and, and, and outlooks on Christian living that people say, you know, I can do it that way. And, and so we do it this Wesleyan way. And like I said, not at the expense of our being Christian servants of the Lord Jesus, our King, but it is a means of grace. That's what Wesley would call it. So I wanna introduce you to something that's happening in these passages real quickly that is Wesleyan in the sense that it's, I can tell you how John Wesley would have interpreted what this passage is saying about God's grace. To understand God's grace, just recognize that grace is nothing, in John Wesley's mind, it's not, a, uh, it, it, it's not like the Holy Spirit or it's not a thing, it's just a word that describes how God works, right? Grace is a way that describes a fundamental quality of God. 
And God's grace is the foundational quality upon which our whole relationship with God stands. If he didn't love us on purpose and save us just because he wanted to, we'd be in a heap of hurt. But because God wants to save us and takes the prerogative that only he has and the initiative that only he can do and saves us, that's God's grace. You know, he did it. God did it. We didn't do it. God did it because God wanted to, not because God had to, not because God needed it. It, it, It's like, you know, to understand the concept of grace, just realize that this was something God just really wanted to do. Maybe today you'll do something really precious for your moms. Or maybe you children will look at your moms and you realize that your mother is just this picture of grace most of the time. Because she just does things for you because she wants to. (laughs) She loves you because she can't help it. It's just her nature. It just feels like the right thing to do for her and she just cannot help but love you. And this is grace. And God's grace is far superior to a mother's grace. And so for grace's sake, God saves us. John Wesley then breaks down grace into a few categories that you can read about in this passage. He first describes something called prevenient grace. Now that's a word that sounds great if you're a 1700s era Englishman, but for us it's a weird word, but it just means that that God's grace is out there sort of looking for you even when you're not looking for him. In other words, he's already got his eye on you whether you're looking for God or not. The unbeliever, the person who has no particular interest in Christianity or God or any of that, the self-proclaimed atheist can be caught up in God's prevenient grace simply because God hasn't ceased to love them just because they don't want to love God back. See, that's the thing about God's grace. He loves you anyway. He loves you if you don't love him back. But he is only going to be able to save you when you love him back. And so there's where what John Wesley would call justifying grace happens. But I told you, I'm not gonna build on this too much except to say that these words can be a little off-putting, but the concepts are here. I had often read these passages to interpret that Peter was, you know, going where the Spirit led him and he was just doing all these cool things. And and then this latest reading, I thought, you know, John Wesley would say, no, Peter was around, but God's grace was there before he got there. That God was reaching out to these people at different places, these people who are on the margins, these people that weren't invited into church, who weren't invited to hear the latest evangelist or, or the public meeting or whatever. These were people who weren't gonna go to the places where you could learn about this new religion called Christianity. These were people who weren't gonna be there. These were people yet that God had invited. They were people that God had reached out to. And the reason that Peter went to them was because God got a acknowledgement from them, you might say. I mean, it's kind of, this is again, a difficult concept, but let's just say the prevenient grace is like God's calling you and you just keep ignoring the call because it looks just like another one of those scam calls. 
You know, you, your phone just keeps ringing and you keep hanging it up and rejecting the call. But one day you pick it up and you answer it and you realize it's God. And you realize that in a way, you've been kind of hoping God would call because you've been kind of thinking that you needed to have a better understanding of who God is anyway. See, you can't change an atheist's mind, but an atheist can change her mind or his mind. And only God knows when that time is. Only God knows when they're gonna pick up the phone, you know? And so we often get so hung up on trying to persuade people to believe what they don't wanna believe. But if we understand Wesley's idea of prevenient grace, it is that God's grace is out there, just loving everybody whether they like it or not. I mean, you know, think about it for a minute. If you wanna say something to your atheist friend, you can just smile politely and say, I hate to tell you this, but God loves you whether you like it or not. I hate to tell you this, but God loves you and wants to save you and there's not a darn thing you can do about it. But if you decide that you want his love and you want to be saved, there is something you can do about that. But you can't stop him from loving you just because you don't believe in him. That's prevenient grace. Justifying grace causes people to believe and realize that they have been justified before God because of Christ and the grace of God that saves them. And justification just means, you know, you go to the gates of heaven and God's standing there and he says, why should I let you in? What justification can you give me for letting you into my heaven? And, and your answer is really simple. Your son saved me. That's the only justification I have. And then he says, well, come on in. That's justification. And then Simon Peter well, you know, he's way past that. He's growing in the Lord. He's, he's way ahead of most of us at this point in his life. And so what he's experienced is called sanctifying grace. In other words, God's growing him up and making him a better version of a Christian man, not because Peter's that's good, but because God loves him that much. So it's like the more you open yourself to God's love and grace, the more God's grace and love begin to change you for the better. And you know, John Wesley believed that in some people's lives, they might actually reach a point where their grace and love is perfect. That it's so much like God's love and grace that you can't tell when you're looking at a person that you aren't talking to the Lord himself. And now that doesn't mean that everything about them is perfect. It just means they've encountered God to the extent that they've become perfect mirrors of God's love and grace. So there are the forms of grace that John Wesley would tell you, define how God works in the lives of God's people and those who might be God's people. And they're all in this story that we just read. And I hope that wherever you are in that spectrum, whether you're still not sure whether God loves you or whether you're willing to be loved by God, his prevenient grace is gonna keep hounding you whether you like it or not. And if you've received that grace and you've been justified by that grace, then you're under an obligation from love to love him back so much that he begins to change you in ways that might seem imperceptible, but over time you look back at where you were once upon a time and you go, well, who'd have thunk it? I'd never believed I'd end up where I am today. I never thought I'd see myself here today. And yet here I am and I'm liking it. Well, that would be sanctifying grace at work in your life. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. 
and for my ability to get through presenting it. Now, bless it and nurture it in the hearts of your people with your grace so that they might be changed forever. Amen. Amen.